I'd like to just read three verses in uh, chapter 52 of Isaiah. Uh, we won't get farther than this. Uh, I anticipate that uh, this study will take some time. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Let's pray. Lord, this is a deep and important portion of your word. We ask your Holy Spirit would take us through these things, especially, Lord, to prepare for the Lord's Supper that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior in all his work for sinners. In his name we pray, amen. amen. The Suffering Servant passage is a passage that has got the attention of many, many people, and in the reading of it you can see why. James Durham had 72 sermons on Isaiah 53. He didn't even take up the three verses that he read, 72 sermons. So it got his attention to preach on it. I don't, I don't intend to preach 72 messages, but you could, you could because it's, it's, so, it's so rich. But the purpose for today and the purpose for maybe some continued studies, that's my goal is to have continued studies on Lord, Lord's Suppers is to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. Uh, preparation for the Lord's Supper is necessary. Uh, Paul tells us that before taking the Lord's Supper, each person should examine themselves. We should take some time and, and think about it and think what we're doing and, and, and meditate on it. And you say, well, it's just a cup. It's just this wafer thing that somebody made. But see, really, it's, it's what they represent, and it's what's in the chapter. Right there, that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. That right there, that represents his body. You, you, you can't just say, well, okay, it's the Lord's Supper. We're almost done. You have to look at yourself because of what those things represent. That's what it is. You don't know the Lord if you can't examine yourself in light of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ because how are you going to be saved? What are you going to profess? You have to first realize that he suffered and bled and died for sinners and then say, now I can remember it. But what do I do first? I look at myself. What's my relationship with God? What, where am I right now? So there's preparation for the Lord's Supper, but also... I desire this study would be an aid, a prod, that means push us along, and a help to our devotional life with the, the suffering servant. Because what we are here, we should be in our homes, in our closet, in our devotions. I take these elements and I remember his death, but I should do that at home. I should wake up in the morning and say, I am a privileged person. Because God has shown me mercy because Jesus died for me. He shed his blood for me. And I just want to pray to God and praise his name. I want to draw closer to Christ. It, it should impel us and prod us and help us in our devotional life. In today's case, he's just called Yahweh's servant. 
my servant. He served God's purposes. And then finally, one goal is an, it's an opportunity to proclaim the Savior and the gospel. Paul says that when we take of the elements, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, you said, well, I, I didn't think there were, I was going to be a preacher today. If you truly believe it, it's as if when you take those elements, you say loudly, Jesus Christ died to save my sins. And the other element comes and you say, Jesus Christ died to save my sins. Because if you can't say that from the heart and you're taking them, you're saying, I am a total hypocrite. You proclaim the Lord's death until he come. And some translations are weak. They say show or shoe. But the word means to proclaim. In a sermon in Acts that says forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's the gospel of Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. Not a few of them. All of them. From the time you were this big and shorter till now. Every sin of yours can be taken away. Amen. And when we take the elements, we proclaim it. And let's not forget that we should proclaim it to our neighbors as well. Well, I, I, I only like to have the hope of salvation in the church. It's easier for me. We worry that we'll be rejected. And he told us, if they hate me, they'll hate you. What are we afraid of? Being rejected? Oh, I, I don't want to talk to my neighbors about it. They might reject me. Well, what's new? Proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Jesus Christ died for my sins. Neighbor, I want to tell you, Christ died for my sins. And he could be your savior Two. What did he tell them? This is my blood of the covenant. This is God's covenant dealings with man. Can you imagine God saying, I'm going to come into an agreement with you. You confess Christ, I'll forgive all your sins. It's an unbreakable covenant. Think of it. Which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus said when he inaugurated it. Luke's version says, this is my body, which is given for you. He gave up his body. Paul says, if you look back and see what happened, it says on the night that he was betrayed. How could you betray Jesus? He knew everything that was going on. It's because he said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it. I give it. He stood up from prayer and he said, behold, here he comes. The hour is the hour is here. The betrayer is coming. He knew it. All the way. This is my body, which is given for you. And we proclaim uh, to others. It's the strength to tell others. The, the confession, the confession has seven or eight things that we do. I have to read it from time to time. I forget. It's for a perpetual remembrance. We proclaim forth a sacrifice of himself. We confirm the faith of believers in all the benefits of it. There, it's for our spiritual nourishment, growth, further engagement into all duties that we owe to God. This strengthens us to say, God, because you saved me, I want to do more for you. I want to serve you. I want to be obedient. Look at all those things. 
And it's to be a bonded pledge of our communion with him, not only the Lord, but with each other. When I take communion, I say, God, I'm pledging myself to you, but I say, I'm pledging myself to these people. We're in a group of people that take these elements and proclaim the Lord's death till they come. And I can look you in the face and I can say, I'm proclaiming it with you. We're in this together. Amen. Seven or eight things, the confession says. What an amazing thing. And then, and then we, we come... Uh, to the passages, and, and I'd like to go over it. I, I, I really think we're just going to run out of time, but we'll see how it goes. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 is the first, is the first uh, time the servant is mentioned. Look at the facets of the, his ministry. Look at what he does. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God says, I made him the servant, but I delight in him. I've put my spirit upon him. I'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. We could, we could make comments on it, but you see that he's called, that he's chosen. You see that his business is spiritual business. Somebody... Somebody in the, the most tenuous spiritual condition that's like a blue, bruised reed or a candle that's almost ready to go out, Jesus has the gentleness and the spiritual know-how to take care of that person. But he also has the power because the gospel is going to go to all nations. That's the servant. Isaiah uh, chapter 49, the coastlands wait for his law. And Isaiah 49 verse 1 begins with coastlands. Here... It's as if the, the servant is speaking. Listen to me, O coastlands. It means the rest of the world. It means the whole world. And give attention, you peoples. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Right? Goes right to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 19. He made my mouth like a two-edged sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant. Jesus is God's servant to do God's will to save people from sin. In Israel, in whom I'll be glorified. One of our studies coming up someday is going to be in the Gospel of John because there's 40 times glory or glorified is mentioned. I've wanted to do a study of that. Uh, for quite a long time. And maybe someday we will. Forty times. Glory. What did they say? We beheld his glory. Amen. What did Jesus say? I lived my whole life to do what? To glorify you. And this servant passage says the same thing. All his activity is going to glorify God the Father. Uh, Isaiah chapter 50 is, a, is the next uh, servant chapter. But we're not going to uh, uh, take a look at that now. But you get the idea. He's the he's the servant. The 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 writers are are staggered by this passage. So should we. E. J. Young says, "In language of unspeakable force and beauty, unspeakable force and beauty." That's what he calls this 
the thing that we're studying. The prophet has portrayed the great deliverance of the church. Barnes says, a correct exposition of this passage will be of inestimable value in giving to the Christian, the individual person, just views of the atonement and of the whole doctrine of redemption. Probably in no portion of the Bible of the same length, not even in the New Testament, is there to be found so clear an exhibition of the purpose for which the Savior died. And Barnes is bringing out three important things. He talks about the value of it. He talks about how comprehensive it is. And he talks about how clear it is. You have to go to this passage and read about Jesus Christ because it's value, it's comprehensive, and it's clear. John Trapp speaks of a Jewish man named Johannes Isaac who was converted reading and looking at this chapter. There is another man called the Philippian, I mean the Ethiopian eunuch who was converted reading the chapter as well. I need somebody to explain to me what it's all about. And Philip told him it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The guy, the guy is driving on the road. He's driving on the road. You can be saved today. It's proof. He's driving on the road. They come to water and he says, I'm a believer. Let's have a baptism. Put me in the baptism. Baptize me. I'm ready to profess Jesus Christ as my savior. He's just going on the road reading a scroll. The next thing he's being baptized because of the power of this passage. Trapp says about Mr. Johannes Isaac's experience and him being converted. He says, and well it might. And well this passage might convert everybody that reads it. For taken together it is an entire prophecy or rather a history of Christ's person and acts. Both in the state of his humiliation and in his exaltation. Before us is a most powerful text. We say, yeah, you're kind of getting worked up about it. I can see that. No, that's what it really is of itself. May God the Holy Spirit teach us and write these truths indelibly on our hearts. Let, let, may he make a bunch of Johannes Isaacs today. People who said, I never thought about that before. I never thought that that is blood and that's that represents all he went through and this whole 20-something verses, all it talks about is that Jesus died this terrible death. And the, the, the Bible says today is the day to believe. Tomorrow is not the day to believe. You don't have tomorrow in your back pocket. Well, what are you talking about? I get to go to work tomorrow. I got people to see, things to do, this, that, this. No, you don't. You, you have today to get right with God. That's what you have. And, and then, I'm sorry about these, these notes. But as we begin, again, God declares, behold. He wants to say, take a look. Take notice at my servant. Take time to see the Lord Jesus Christ and what he went through. Behold. It's a clear connection to the other passages. Behold, my servant. And the introduction and the identification of the servant is by God himself. At the transfiguration, they said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says, God says, all my pleasure is on this, my son, that you're walking around with him. He's teaching you. But all my pleasure is on him. That's, that's the same thing. 
But look at the servant's action and the result. Most translations, uh, five out of the seven that I have, say that the servant will act wisely. Other translations say prophecy. And it's, it's kind of a combination uh, there because uh, in Joshua's charge, in Joshua 1, 7, and 8, uh, he is told to act wisely or to prosper. In uh, 1 Samuel 18, 5, it talks about David and David's conquests. And either it was he acted wisely or he had success. And it's interesting that some of the versions say act wisely in, in Isaiah and good success in the, in the other place. And, and it, it's, it's words that kind of blend together. Uh, Young says the, the verb is capable of several uh, connotations. The heart of it is prudent and wise dealings. And, and Young uh, uh, says again, he who deals wisely will obtain success. It's a biblical principle, isn't it? The servant uses the best means to obtain the highest end. Think of the wise man in Proverbs. What does he do? He listens and what happens? He profits, he learns, he gains. So if you act wisely, you'll prosper. The Bible says that. If, if you want to be a wise man and you listen to correction, you're going to gain. But, but Jesus acted wisely. He dealt wisely. Kyle and Dalich say intelligent action is effective. This is action suited to the great object of his call. What was he called to do? Save sinners. That of effective execution or a, and abundant success which has as its natural sequel an ever-increasing exaltation. The next things that they say is my servant will be exalted. He acted wisely, he dealt wisely, and he's exalted. The servant's wise action and success guaranteed our salvation. Guaranteed our salvation. Regardless of the severity of the sufferings that are described in the chapter, we'll read that he's exalted, and the next verse talks about him being beaten so that you can't even recognize that he's human. And you say, how in the world is he exalted that way? But that's the, that's, the, that's the tension point, isn't it? That's the tension point. Jesus is exalted, but there was a time when he was beaten to a pulp. You couldn't even recognize that he was a human anymore. And then comes these three words as the result. The servant of Jehovah, Jehovah rising from stage to stage reaches at last an immeasurable height that towers above everything else. What's going to happen to the servant? He'll deal wisely, but the ESV says he'll be high. He'll be lifted up. He'll be exalted. New American Standard, high, lifted up, greatly exalted. The words are piled up, three words, piled up. That's what's going to happen to the servant. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, God is called high and lifted up. The same words, but that's what's going to happen to the, the, the servant. And the proof, the proof is in the apostles. Peter started to preach a sermon on Pentecost, and during a sermon, he said, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's what happened to him. That fulfilled the prophecy. And then they gave the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
And the fact that Jesus is exalted, the fact that Peter says he's exalted at the right hand of God is proof that his work of salvation for you is effective to the saving of your soul. Amen. If he's in heaven, you're going to get to heaven. Amen. Think about it. Oh, I thought he died. I thought they put him in the ground. No, only for three days. But now he's at the right hand of God. That's what, that's what Peter said. How, how, how did that happen? Once again, everybody was struck, weren't they? How, how did this work out? The, the, the disciples on the road to dismay, Emmaus, are, are you the only person that doesn't know what's went on? We thought Jesus was going to do all these things. And they killed him. And now there's people that say that he rose from the dead. We can't even figure it all out. And what did Jesus do? He took them back to passages like this and he put it all together. And he said, this is what was always supposed to happen. Peter heard of it the first time. He said, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you. And, and Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Satan conspired to get him to the cross and Satan conspired to keep him away from the cross. He had to go there. Because any other work is satanic activity. You're saying I'm not going to suffer is satanic. And the satanic Pharisees and all those people, they're the ones that are going to plan to put me there. Betray me. What did it say about Jesus? Who entered Jesus? Satan entered Jesus. He's sitting there at a meal. Do you, unconverted person, do you see the trouble your soul is in? That, that Satan can inspire people to do things. He's sitting at a table. And Satan comes in and causes him to betray the Son of God. Think about it. He's exalted again. When Peter says later in verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And if you think about a Jewish audience hearing that Jesus was the Lord and Christ, you would say that probably staggered them. He's the Messiah he just got killed. What are you talking about? No. Nope. Paul picks up right after where Peter picked up. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what happens is that at the end, everybody is going to worship and everybody is going to declare that he's the Lord. I don't want you to wait till that day. Oh, see, I'm, I'm not getting all religious right now. But you can't wait till Judgment Day and then try to say, uh, 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 oh, Jesus is who they said he was all the time. You can't wait. He acted wisely and he was exalted. He's our pattern. It says, have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. What did he do? He completely abased and humiliated himself and took the form of a servant so that he could die, uh, uh, save us from our sins. And Paul says, just be like him. Oh, you say, well, how can I be like him? Don't, don't you know? Don't you know that I came from the mean streets of Titusville? Don't you know there were times that our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches had cardboard for bread? And our shoes were made out of old wood and this and that. That's baloney. That may have happened in the physical realm. But what does Paul say happened in the spiritual realm 
oh, I was born a Hebrew. I was this. I was that. I was this. Boom, 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 boom. He's got a list this long. Nobody in the room, nobody in the world could have a list that's more pedigree perfect than Paul. You can't. That's the point of the passage. Because what did he say he did with all his physical, his physical privileges? You, you see that pile of garbage over there? You see, if I think, oh, I'm from the mean streets of Titusville, I ate cardboard peanut butter, that's what physically happened to me. But what are we supposed to be in the church? What, was, what did Jesus do for us? He said, these people, these people are more important than me. And that's Paul's point. He says, consider everybody else higher than yourself. Mm -hmm. Who's in charge here? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm at the bottom of the, the, oh, I'll ask somebody else. Who's in charge? I don't know. I'm at the bottom. Well, who's, where, who runs this place? Oh, I don't know. I'm at the bottom. But that's what Jesus did for us. That's why he's exalted. That's how he acted wisely. Do you see it? And he prospered. Where is he? He has a name that's higher than any other name. And when he comes back, everybody in the world, whether on purpose or begrudgingly, will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. The final passage just adds more glory and more power to the whole thing. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. Paul is talking about working out of this God's great might, which he bought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Where is Jesus now? He's in heavenly places. What? Far above. How far above is far above? And look at all the things. All rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Who is the king? Who is on his throne right now? The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He dealt wisely and he's exalted right now. Who is going to be the king exalted on his throne for the rest of eternity? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's God's servant. He was chosen, and he's going to be highly exalted. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Can you imagine that? Do you see the servant? The church is given to the servant, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a silly picture, but you know sometimes after a meal you say, well, I really feel full. I'm full. I can't eat anything more. And Jesus is satisfied with the fullness of the church. Every saved sinner. That's his fullness. That's his glory. That's what satisfies him the most. Not a lobster dinner with all the trimmings. Not the coolest, neatest buffet in, in Philadelphia or anything like that. It's the church. The church is his fullness. The people, the body, that's his fullness. That's what, that's what made him do uh, what he did. The fullness of him who fills all in all. How full is full? And Paul just adds those things. Fill, fuller than full. How can you be fuller than full? But that's the Lord. Think of those things. Raised him. Seated him. Far above. All names, permanently, all time, everything's under his feet, and he takes care of the church. That's his fullness. The people that he died to save, the people that he's 
that he's working with, the people that he promised eternal redemption. That's what, that's what, uh, that's what is his fullness. God and Christ ordained and orchestrated. They worked it out, the salvation of sinners. And later in our text, we'll see out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Many of the writers there say, even on the cross, Jesus knew, I am actually really saving people from their sins. Right. That's our atonement. It's a definite atonement, right? Didn't just die to make it possible that people could be saved. There was real, real people that were saved. Right. And Jesus understood that. And he knew that he wasn't on a fool's errand. He knew that his blood was truly paying the price for the sins of billions of billions of people, a number that no man can count. I don't know the rest of the words to this song, but uh, one of those old coffee houses, uh, uh, the, the woman had, I was in his mind the night he died for me. And I can't prove that. I can't say, yeah, Jesus thought about every sinner on the cross. I don't think so, but, but think about it. I was in his mind. He's the head of the church. You're in his mind if you're in his church. He's the savior. You're in his mind if, if he's going to call you, if he's going to bring you. His word is being preached to you now. You're in his mind. Come, you're, if you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Uh, but he's exalted. Our studies in the Revelation show the risen, exalted Christ ruling and reigning over his church. We went through. He tells the church, this is what you should do. But then in chapter 5, the opening of the seals, it's so important. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he's conquered and he's there. But he's called these different things. But John turns around and he sees a lamb, a lamb standing as though it was slain. You say, well, what is he? Is he a lion of the tribe of Judah? Is he is the root of David? Is he a, a, a lamb standing? Yes, it's all of those things. But they're all pictures and names of exaltation. What happens? He takes the scroll and all these people fall down. Think about that. The, these, these aren't sinners in heaven. These are people that need somebody to atone for their sins and they still fall down. And I want to be there, don't you? Not even sinning and still looking at Christ and saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Praise the lamb that was slain for billions and billions of years. That's how great the salvation is. 24 elders and other people, they just fell down and started singing a song of praise. And they don't even have any sin. What an amazing thing. He's exalted. Redeemed people in heaven are singing. Sinless people are singing into all eternity. Well, it's time for some applications. And we're going to look at two courtrooms and a closet. The first courtroom is the courtroom of Judgment Day because everybody is going to face Judgment Day. It's a part of Jesus' exaltation that in a number of passages in the scripture, it says that he's going to come back with his angels. He's coming back and he's making the decisions. The Matthew passage says he's the one that's going to separate the sheep from the goats and he's going to give them an examination. And I just want to ask you, can you pass the examination of judgment day. What did you do? Oh, some people said, well, dude, didn't you know we did all this stuff? 
He said, I didn't know you. Well, you said, well, wait a minute. They said they did all these things. No, because things aren't the thing. The blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is the thing. The other people, they, he said, you did all these things. They said, when did we do those things? Because they were just doing them as a natural consequence of them being saved. They weren't thinking about, okay, four good things today. Put those in my pocket. Two good things tomorrow. You can't get to Judgment Day without the blood and without the, the body of Christ. You can't. What is our hope? Hebrews 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That's our hope. Not what I did, not my career, not, not the, not, you know, I came from the streets of Titusville, baloney. That's the pile of trash that's over there. What is it? It's Jesus's blood and righteousness. I'm trusting in Jesus's blood because that is what saves sinners, not what sinners do. Sinners do what? They sin. Our hope is in shed blood of God's servant. His blood redeems. That means it's a satisfaction. It makes amends. Here's God's anger and wrath on sinners, and Jesus' blood takes it away. It redeems. It buys them back. And the passage says he secured, he brought about eternal redemption. Here's the date, whenever it's going to be, that I will die. And my redemption goes where? Past where I'm going to die. My redemption goes past where I'm going to die, but past the end of the world if the two are, are different. Oh yeah, he died 30 years ago. And then the Lord comes back. Well, those 30 years I've been kept. Those 30 years I'm safe because it's an eternal redemption. And it also says that it happened in time, but it'll never end. We mentioned it before, right? The evolutionists, oh, the world took billions of years. to. Well, you'll spend billions of years in hell. And each day will be as bad as the next. And all you'll realize is it'll never, never end. That, that's, that's, oh, these are scare tactics. No, that's really going to happen. It's not scare tactics. It's a redemption so powerful that it takes the sinner and puts him in the right standing with God forever and eternally. We can picture with the, with the eye and the confidence of faith that it's so. The humbled servant is exalted. And remember, the exaltation means that everything he did was approved. His sacrifice was approved. His resurrection verified that who he was, that's what he truly was that. And then the next thing is the courtroom of conscience. First, judgment day, now your conscience. And it's an amazing thing. It's a wonder of God's created power uh, uh, that, that we have consciences. We're different than any other creature. And they can go to civilizations that have no hint of what the Bible says, and they can find them instituting laws and instituting things. Paul says it's a work of the law on people's hearts. He says it bears witness, and your conscience either accuses you or defends you. And if we look at God's law and man's sin, then we say we're done. Just start with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Oh, 
I like my car more than I like God. What are you talking about? I like my house and all the features of it more than I like God. Well, I'm done. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Well, I, I casually use the Lord's name sometimes. Well, the scripture says that you're guilty. God holds people guilty, it says, who use his name in a wrong way. And, and make no idols. Well, I don't have idols in my house. I, I think you probably do. Maybe that 100-inch smart TV that I just got. Don't bow down to it, but I sure sit in front of it for hours. We, we lie to ourselves about God's commandments. And then, and then he set apart a day in creation. He said, that day is blessed and sanctified. And people say, huh, Sunday? Pfft, I'll do what I feel like doing. God's not going to tell me how to spend my time. You're done. There's six commandments left and you're done. We're all done. Paul says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become accountable to God. He says, the point of me preaching to you and telling you about yourself is so that you can shut your mouth before God. And what you realize is, I am in the worst condition possible. Watson says, Sin has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. There's a, there's a hopeful course, right? Oh, I got this new job for you. You're going to have the devil is your boss. Uh, you're just going to be shamed all the time and then you'll die. Well, what kind of career is that? When, when God brings the, our sins on our conscience, this barrage... Our conscience will not help us because our conscience will have to say, if it's honest, I am guilty. Right. I am guilty. We hate to say it. We still hate to say it. Your wife points something out. Your husband points something out. Somebody at work points something out. Well, 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 well. well. There, was a, there was a man who had it right he stood in the corner. He didn't look up. He beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And some of the most amazing, hopeful words in all of scripture is, this man went down to his house justified. Amen. I can be fumbling for my keys, thinking about the state of my soul. If I repent before I put them in the ignition, I could be saved. I could be thinking about it and repenting on the way home. And before I sit on my couch this afternoon, I could be converted. All my sin can be dealt with. All my sin can be removed because it's not up to me. Somebody removed it by their blood. Somebody took it away because they suffered and died for sinners. The writer to the Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Quantitatively, your conscience can be cleansed. The dead works is everything we try to do. Well, if I can't get saved, I'll just be the nicest guy. I'll just be the hardest worker. I'll just be this, I'll be, no, 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 no. Stop working. Stop thinking that your works are gonna save you. And notice it says how much more will the eternal blood. 
And then spiritually, you have to think about it. This passage is a Trinitarian wonder because it talks about the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. You see it? What did they do in the Old Testament? There was a lamb. I put my hands on it. It was a physical thing. The writer to the Hebrews is trying to, is trying to encourage us and get us to see that the entire Trinity worked out your salvation. Jesus offered himself through the Spirit without blemish to God. They all worked on it together. Can you have a salvation that's more sure and more greater than anything else? No, you can't. And that's why he says that's going to cleanse your conscience. Because now what are you going to do? I'm going to try to live for God. That's what it says. Cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What was I serving before? Myself. Nicest guy in the block. I'll do anything for anybody. I have, I have a relative that does that. I'll do anything for anybody. And they go out and they do it. But that's their justification. That's their means of being right with God. And the passage is saying no, because your conscience will keep coming back. But when you know your salvation is inaugurated by Christ through the Spirit to God, you're saved. You're saved. Your conscience, you can sin and then say, God, please forgive me. And, and 1 John says, he's just to forgive your sins. And you're doing everything out of a different motive, like those people who said, when did we do that? Because you're serving God to serve God, not, not for gain, not to keep that checklist. You just say, Jesus died for me. I just want to go and work and work and serve and work and obey and worship. That's what I want to do. And then your conscience is, is free. And, and the final thing, we'll just make it short. Two courtrooms and a closet. And I mentioned it at the beginning. What happens to you on Monday morning when you have your devotions? What happens to you? What do we think about? Oh, I'm too busy. Are you kidding? My alarm goes off and I got this to do. I got that. I got this. I got that. I got this. Well, all those things are, are helping you to damn your own soul. What is the priority? If, if you've seen this at all, you have to say, I have to react to this somehow. I have to figure this out. I have to know. What is Judgment Day going to bring? What does my conscience tell me? And what happens in my closet? Closet, what are you talking about? That's a problem. Do you have a prayer life? Do you have a spiritual life? Do we have any life that wakes up in the morning and says, Jesus, I love you. I worship you. Hallelujah. What a savior you are. Amen. Is there any kind of reflexive thing going on in your life that, that recognizes how glorious this is? That recognizes that the servant is to be exalted far above everything. And, and brethren, we, we all need to exhort ourselves to this. We, we all need to see it. This is so wonderful. It's, you heard the writers. Incomprehensible. Towers above everything else. That's what it really is. These are just two elements. You would say, what's going on? Oh, the, the bread looks like it was a little overdone. That's not what it's about. It's a token of somebody who bled and died. And then on the cross, he said, 
It's finished. It's done. He knew it was done. He knew he paid the price. He knew an, a number, uncountable, were going to be saved by believing in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths are staggering to the soul, staggering to sinners, and yet you've had mercy on, on many of us, Lord. You've been so gracious to us to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray we would never forget. We pray in the courtroom of our mind and our conscience, even in our devotions, these truths would impel us uh, to be grateful and to praise our Savior even into eternity. In his name we pray. Amen.